everyone. Welcome to Building Voices. My name is Rebecca Tabner. I'm an associate in the London office of the ICE Disputes team at CMS. We've released a few podcasts in this series, and today's topic of discussion is advocacy. The ICE Disputes team specialises in contentious construction work, both domestically and internationally, and we benefit from a broad range of specialists in the team. In light of our team's expertise, we wanted to record a series of podcasts discussing topical issues that are relevant to the construction industry and have a disputes focus. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Marcus Tavner QC, a barrister specialising in construction and engineering disputes. Marcus was called to the bar in 1981 and until last year was head of Keating Chambers. He currently practises as an arbitrator and adjudicator. Welcome, Marcus. Thank you for being here today. Hello. I'd like to kickstart this conversation by asking, can you tell us what you think makes a good advocate? Well, that's a huge topic with many tributaries. Much is now written and, and taught about uh, good and bad advocacy. Although when I started, very little was taught. It was basically get on with it. In fact, the first uh, cross-examination of an expert witness I ever saw was my own in a 21-day case just out of pupillage. I should have, I was inexperienced and dreadful and very fortunate to be guided through the case by a very kind and understanding judge. Um, but you'll know, in broad terms, advocacy is, is pleading the case of another. It's in essence the art of persuasion. So submissions which begin from a logical starting place and flow succinctly and seamlessly to the final conclusion is the objective. The skill is in the presentation of points which might hinder that possession. Good advocacy, however, always boils down to successful advocacy. That, in turn, is the art of persuading that particular tribunal at that particular time that what you say is correct when any contrary suggestion by the other side is wrong. Budding advocates are often told that, if possible, know your tribunal. And the reason for that is that different judges or tribunals like different things. When I started at the bar, there was a well-known master who refused to read any written submissions. He thought that the use of what was then dubbed deeds to advocacy or speaking notes was somehow cheating. In the old days, some judges either did not have time or, or the inclination to read written submissions. They were quite content for all the documents to be read to them over days, often weeks in opening, and have cases cited them at length, and there were no time limits. There were, of course, exceptions. Those sort of exceptions grew up in the early, mid-1980s. There were those judges who encouraged written submissions. And they were predominantly the old official referees, now the TCC judges. Modern advocacy, in all cases now, is very, very different. Good written advocacy your written submissions, especially in complex cases, are pivotal to success. Poor written submissions can do damage and, and damage which is difficult to redress. Uh, the role of oral advocacy is therefore different. Nonetheless, judges' preferences differ. Some judges get irritated if the oral submissions veer off piste. In other words, they don't follow orally what is set out in the written submissions. Other judges find it unhelpful to have read to them what they have already read and understood. How to integrate oral submissions with your written submissions and to weave in responses to the points made in your opponent's written submissions, not necessarily dealt with in your own, is a required and an important skill. 
do different cases require different approaches? Well, look, there are there are obviously no hard and fast rules as to what makes good advocacy. There are different styles and approaches, and it should be self-evident that a style which is convincing to a jury won't necessarily be persuasive or impress the Supreme Court. Although there will always be common characteristics of good advocacy, what goes down well in front of a single judge will not always fit the bill before a three-man arbitral tribunal, especially where some are not lawyers. Um, uh, there was one advocate who told me that he always did fabulously well in the Court of Appeal, but did not fare very well at first instance or in front of arbitrators. He, uh, he told me that appearing habitually in front of arbitrators made him a much lazier advocate. But the, the ability to adapt your style can be important. Sometimes judges do not like confidence submissions. Um, this can sometimes be leading with the chin. Presentation of a good point does not need to be made overconfidently. On the other hand, too much diffidence on a less strong point can indicate a lack of confidence. You say that there are common characteristics of good advocates. What are they? Well, first, meticulous preparation, knowing your case inside out. That in turn requires anticipation of what questions may be asked and why. Good advocates will always ask themselves, where am I at my weakest? What is my best answer to that weak point? They will rehearse the answers in their own mind. They will test that answer with colleagues. The answer will improve with consideration, discussion and honing. A good answer to a difficult question can swing a case. It's always going to be more persuasive than a meandering response or even worse, the gaping fish. Are there any others? Well, the, the ability to adapt to the particular circumstances. Different tribunals are often in different stages of knowledge about a case. Different judges like different things. A few years ago, an opponent opened his submissions in the Court of Appeal on what was essentially a short point on the meaning of a clause in a contract by saying, may it please your lordships, I have 12 points. The president of the Court of Appeal audibly groaned and said, we have all read your opening submissions, Mr. Snooks. Just give us your best three points. The startled barrister responded, yes, of course, but nonetheless was again stopped by the president when he arrived at point seven. Sometimes a judge will say, I've read the contract, uh, but not the schedules for the contract. Could you take me to those? Take note, place your submissions on the contract and concentrate on the schedules. The ability to adapt, though, depends upon meticulous preparation, knowing your subject uh, and topic inside out. Don't be in the place where we've all been, where it's only walking down Fleet Street after the case that your best point comes to you. The sort of, um, oh, I wish I'd said. Do you have any particular tips uh, for presenting a case on a point of interpretation of a contract? Uh, that's an interesting question. Points of interpretation, certainly if they've got to the Court of Appeal are almost always difficult. That's why they've got that far. How you present the case is, is really important. Uh, the first temptation, which should be avoided at all costs, is to cite a wealth of authority on how to interpret contracts. It always irritates uh, um, first instance judges, uh, the Court of Appeal, Supreme. They all know Arnold of Britain inside out. They know the history of interpretation of contracts. They do it every single day. 
So just a little citation, sparingly, and of course relevant to that particular point of construction and issue. Consider how to stress the merits of your case without too much reliance on your submissions becoming a creed de coeur, and notwithstanding authority which precludes you from doing so. That's a real skill. Too much reliance on the merits meets with opposition from the court. No reliance can perhaps miss a trick. Another point is that some judges don't like to be told the reasoning behind the answer or even the answer itself. They like to find it themselves. So always consider revealing the answer as opposed to telling the court what the answer is. And another uh, consideration is this. Consider leaving a good point out of your written submissions, but only to make it in oral submissions. By doing this, it gives it emphasis. Sometimes you can drop in that point in answer to an inevitable question from the court. Sometimes it can throw your opponent. This is it's a risky approach, but nonetheless, sometimes it's a matter which ought to be given serious consideration. I've seen this sort of viewpoint swing a case. I think what our listeners will be really interested to learn is how did you learn all of this? Well, it's... <laughs> How does any advocate learn uh, anything about advocacy? It's just practice and more practice. It's taking every chance you have to advocate in front of any and all tribunals, however great or small. All good advocates have learned by their inevitable and previous mistakes. Some say, I can never be a good advocate because I can't think on my feet. Well, I totally disagree with that. If you can hold a decent conversation, you can think on your feet. You simply have to get into a mindset such that the circumstances of being in front of a tribunal are not debilitating. And that just comes from practice. An important part of what an advocate does is, is cross-examine. Again, it's a huge topic. Sometimes advice on cross-examination proceeds on the basis that you have a great case or a winning case if certain answers can be coaxed or bullied out of a witness. The justice of your case will be revealed. Well, maybe. But good advice is don't argue with a witness. Coax, sometimes trap, sometimes be firm, but don't argue. It's also tried, but sometimes your position on a particular issue in a case might not be so great. Indeed, you may come to the conclusion that the more it's investigated, the less likely that a tribunal is, uh, is to find in your favor. That in turn leads to different approaches and different techniques. Ignore the topic altogether, not a good idea, or the glancing blow, an in and out, but not obviously so. How you approach and deal with such a topic can be crucial, but don't be that advocate who asked uh, by a tribunal in closing submissions why he did not ask a question of a particular witness blames the pressure of time. It's the last refuge. There are plenty of adages which we've all heard. Don't ask a question you do not know the answer to. Well, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I think it's much more sophisticated. I often uh, used to ask questions I didn't know the answer to, but I had either concluded that whatever the answer is, it would uh, improve my case, or it certainly wouldn't harm my client's position. Sometimes getting an answer from an open question can be much more persuasive than an answer, yes or no, to a closed question. 
sometimes a case calls for what I have uh, dubbed man marking, keeping tight up against the witness so his answers are kept short and confined. This is vitally important if you think free-range answers will expose adverse aspects of your client's position. It sometimes can be difficult. Some tribunals help reminding a witness to answer the question. Some tribunals are less inclined, saying let the witness answer the question, let him finish. There are many different styles in terms of cross-examination, um, uh, adopting the right tone for that particular judge and that particular witness is vital. Some judges simply don't like aggressive cross-examination, whatever the circumstances. Others are much more inclined to accept it if they consider it warranted. Sometimes it's a matter of personality of the judge uh, or tribunal, uh, and sometimes it's a matter of your own personality as to whether or not you feel comfortable um, in that sort of tone of cross-examination. How do you find out what the judge likes? Well, you test it and you try and assess the judge's reaction. And of course, ready to change tack if you think uh, uh, the particular line that you're adopting isn't working. What difference, if any, is there between cross-examining a witness of fact and an expert witness? Again, a, a very, very interesting question. There, there are undoubtedly differences. Uh, first, there can be many witnesses of fact uh, in a construction case, the sort of stuff that, uh, that I used to do. Many don't want to be there. Their interest in the outcome may range from none at all to simply a desire to justify their own stance on a particular project to a direct financial uh, interest in the outcome. In general, though, I've always found that tribunals are much more tolerant of witnesses of fact. And unless clearly duplicitous or mendacious, they don't really like over-aggressive cross-examination of witnesses of fact. Um, indeed, if, if a witness is obviously lying, uh, there's no need for aggressive cross-examination. His, his evidence stands uh, for itself. It's patent. And what about experts? Well, in my experience, again, tribunals are much more tolerant of hard questioning of a, an expert. Uh, and there are many reasons for this. But after all, a, an expert is supposed to be independent and their duty, their predominant duty is there to assist the tribunal as opposed to advocating their client's case. That they're, they're paid generously uh, and it's their choice to be there. Uh, they don't have to be. Uh, and in addition to that, they're, they're often experienced. They've given evidence before. They've, they've been around the track. How did you approach cross-examination of an expert? Well, it depended, um, and uh, it depended on the issues, the discipline of the expert and so forth. Again, it's one of those topics you could talk for, for hours. Um, I've I, I probably cross-examined or seen cross-examined hundreds of experts over the last um, 30 or 40 years. Questions you, you have to ask yourself is, when and how do I question an expert on their credit, um, on their expertise? What order do you take an expert to particular topics? Not all are self-evident, and the sequence you deal with topics can be all important. Um, I should just mention in construction cases, we often deal with delay claims, programming experts. And, and, and how do you cross-examine them? In my experience, of all the varied disciplines, uh, cross-examining delay or programming experts is the most difficult. Often their evidence is founded in facts, which may or may not be true. Um, therefore, one has to cross-examine them on alternative scenarios. They often use methodologies which have subtle differences, but they can give rise to markedly different outcomes. 
What is required by the contract to establish an entitlement state and extension of time is often different and overlooked, but nonetheless crucial. What I can say, though, is, is what is paramount is preparing and rehearsing your cross-examination in collaboration with your own expert. In other words, you sit down with him and say, well, look, what topics are we going to cross-examine on? Where are we strong? Where are we weak? What's good? What's bad? If I say to him in cross-examination, what could he say in response? If he says that in response, what's my next question? And so forth. Um, all, all of this um, is, in my view, uh, um, or, or can be uh, important and very useful cross-examination. Of course, at the bottom of all of it is understanding yourself what is the crucial foundational evidence on which that expert relies upon uh, in, in reaching his conclusions. Uh, and of course, undermining that is the aim. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but how would you sum it all up? Well, that, 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 it's simply this. Ultimately, it's, it's time-consuming and painstaking preparation, which makes a good advocate. I mean, and, and in addition, like most things, uh, uh, the more you do, the, the better inevitably we will become. Marcus, many thanks for joining me today. That was hugely insightful and a topic that I'm sure all of our listeners will be very interested in. We look forward to joining all of our listeners next time to discuss further topical issues impacting on the construction industry. Thanks again, Marcus. Thank, thank you. Um, but by the way, have I, have I come across you before? <laughs> Maybe.